This program is brought to you by PersonalLifeMedia.com. Hi, and welcome to Green Talk, a podcast series from GreenLivingIdeas.com. Green Talk helps listeners in their efforts to lead more eco-friendly lifestyles through interviews with top vendors, authors, and experts from around the world. We discuss the critical issues facing the global environment today, as well as the technologies, products, and practices that you can employ to go greener in every area of your life. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening in today on Green Living Ideas, Green Talk Radio. This is Sean Daly, Editor-in-Chief. And today, the topic of our program is going to be waste prevention and the reduction of overconsumption. And joining me on the program today to speak about that is Bob Lilienfeld, who is an expert on waste prevention, the publisher of the ULS Report, and the author of Use Less Stuff, Environmental Solutions for Who We Really Are. Bob, welcome to the program. Thanks, Sean. A pleasure to be here. So tell us, first of all, how you got involved with the whole concept of, of using less stuff. Well, it goes back about 10 years, and I helped create a recycling program for the city of Chicago and for the White Sox, where we actually collected all sorts of stuff for the Taste of Chicago, which is a giant uh, outdoor food festival, and also all of the drink cups at uh, Comiskey Park. And I kind of had an epiphany, which is we piled up all of this stuff, all of this paper and plastic and glass to recycle, and I realized, you know what? it would be better if we didn't create all this waste in the first place. And that while recycling is a good thing to do, in in reality, we're rewarding ourselves for consuming every time we recycle because we feel good about recycling the trash. And what we should really do is not create any trash in the first place. And I was talking to an editor at the Staten Island newspaper about this, and I said, how do I I tell people about this? He said, you got to do it in three words or less and use less stuff Mm -hmm. matched what what this editor told me to do. Yeah, well, it certainly fits well in in headlines and uh, and sticks in people's brains better. It's always better to be uh, a little bit little bit jingoistic if possible. Um, uh, you're right. In this short attention span society, well, you know, and and it's great. I'm really happy to have you on the program today because this has been a reframe. I think even from uh, energy standpoint, energy usage. We had a guy on the show and we were talking about the concept of, and he's a solar expert and he's you know does lots of solar installations. But he's like, you know, really, really, where I spend the most time is is in um, you know the demand side versus the supply side because people can make much greater inroads and I think that's extended in, into other areas we, we had a uh, Shay Solomon on who we talked about living in smaller homes and you know it really comes down to this basic concept that we, I think we need to ask ourselves which is how much do we really need uh, to be happy we're, we're programmed I think from birth to, to overconsume. And uh, so it's, it's this fundamental sort of shift in thinking that, that people a lot of people haven't done uh, so it's a fascinating concept. Right. So what, what do you think has caused us as a nation to, to overconsume? Why has that become sort of our credo? Um, well, I, I think there, there's two completely separate reasons. The, the first is sociological, and it, it has to do with the fact that we have so much in this country, and there's so much available, um, that the concept of, of overconsumption or of stripping our resources so that there aren't enough for us in the future has never been an issue. So 
it, it's not as if we've ever thought, gee, we, we need to conserve because if we don't, there's going to be problems. Um, so that's the sociological issue. The economic issue, and, and this is really at the forefront right now, is the fact that um, we have been deluged with uh, organizations, companies trying to get us to, to spend more money. Um, and easy credit is a primary example of that. And, and the only reason that, that you go into debt is, is to consume more. I, I'm in my mid-50s, and when I was a kid, nobody really talked about the economy. I mean, the, the, the nightly news, you found out what was going on in the world, what happened locally. Today, the first thing that people want to know is, what's the Dow Jones average doing? So we've, we've kind of become so fixated and focused on the economy, and, and we're basically told that if we don't spend more, things are you know, going to go to hell. And frankly, it, it's just not true, but, but that's the perception that's being created for us. So this is basically driven by fear uh, that our economy is basically inexorably tied to our mass consumption. Yes, and um, I spent many years in the advertising business, and, and I can tell you that, that advertising doesn't really convince you to buy anything on, a, on, an, on an intellectual level. But on an emotional level, there's a, there's a certain feel-good factor about buying things that um, w- for some reason we seem to need more than, than other societies. And, and I would say that's another socio, sociological phenomenon that has to do with, with the way we live. Um, if you go to Europe, and, and almost any place in Asia, people live, for all intents and purposes, right on top of each other. And that's actually a good thing, because you spend time with your neighbors, you spend time with your family, you spend time with your friends, and the psychological impact of having friends and people right there is something that we as Americans don't have so much of because we live far apart from each other. Yeah. Um, we're, we're isolated by our homes and the way we live, and therefore the gratification that we get tends to be physical rather than emotional in nature. Mm-hmm. No, it's, that's absolutely true. I mean, I, I even use myself as an example. Like my, my mom, well, she just moved here, but she's in Hawaii. My dad's in New Jersey. I'm in California. <laughs> you know, and I think that also even in terms of how we, uh, with our jobs and things, we, we travel uh, and then we move our families and we, we sort of go, it becomes very disparate. And uh, whereas I, I totally agree with you in Europe and other countries that I've visited, people are living you know closer together, and there is that more communal sort of feeling. As whereas we get sort of isolate ourselves in these islands and these castles where we're supposed to fill them with stuff, and that's what will replace the happiness, which for me at least seems to be missing because of a lack of friends and family and closeness, socially speaking. You're, you're, you're absolutely right, and and one of the ways that I I'm able to help people understand this is, and I'm going to ask you a question that I ask a lot of reporters. Okay. Think back as a kid, and think back to the holidays, Christmas or Hanukkah. What what are the two or three things you remember most about the holiday season as a child? I would say waiting waiting at the stairs uh, because we weren't allowed to go downstairs until a certain time until mom and dad were up. But then certainly in that top short list would be the gifts that I got, like ones that were really exciting. Right. Okay, no, that, that makes complete sense. But the first thing you said was anticipation. And that's what a lot of people tell me. They, they don't tell me the specific gifts they got. Mm-hmm. They, they'll say, oh, you know, we stood at the top of the stairs or we, we spied on mom and dad. And, yeah, the gifts were important, but, 
but our whole family got together, or you know, Aunt Bessie spilled a cranberry sauce on her lap. And what that makes people realize is so much of, of what drives us emotionally is not the, the physical gifts, but, but experiential moments or experiential things. So, so when, and I get asked all the time by reporters, well, what should, what should, we're going to buy stuff. What should we buy? And my recommendations tend to be in the experiential side. Uh, thing, going, you know, going to concerts, going to sporting events, things like that where there's nothing physical involved. But there's a memory there. And one of the greatest gifts I can ever remember was when I was 13 years old. My father took me to go see a Yankees game. I'm from New Jersey, too, by the way. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I don't have anything to show for it physically, but emotionally, I'll, I'll always remember that. And that warm feeling is worth a heck of a lot more to me than a Barbie doll. Yeah, well, I, no, I totally agree. And I would put travel in that category as well. You know, Absolutely. That's what creates those experiences, but no, well said. So in terms of going back to the economy and, and how we might make a shift, let's envision for a moment that, that the country as a whole embraces this, because I really do see it, I see it as being endemic to American society, uh, not exclusive, but certainly something that we see uh, prevalently here. If we were to make the shift towards, say, experiential uh, consumption or or even perhaps consumption of goods that are more durable, long-lasting. Uh, I think part of this comes down to manufacturing goods that are, tend to uh, expire quickly. And if on the manufacturing side of products that people were, when they do make the product purchases, were buying things that all of a sudden were now lasting longer and maybe companies were charging more, is that a viable economic model as well? Or, uh, because certainly the, the, the consumption of products couldn't go away or seriously reduce overnight without some in, uh, economic impact, I would think. Well, that, that's true. I mean, things that last longer are, certainly make more sense. Um, I'm always accused of Scrooge when I tell people this, but you don't have to give your kids ten presents. Yeah. Um, there's the, it, I can't remember what the term is called, but it, oh, diminishing returns. Your first gift, you're thrilled about. Your second gift, boy, isn't that great. The third one, boy, that's nice. After that, it's kind of like, oh, you know. So it isn't necessarily the quantity. There, it, it can be the quality. One other way to do this is, is obviously not just have things that are more durable, but you don't have to give people ten gifts. And it, is that going to be negative for the economy? Yes, it is, but on a short-term basis. And we're in this situation now which is if we don't start doing certain things to help the environment today, we're going to be in a lot of trouble 25 to 50 years from now. The, the same situation applies with economics. Is at, at some point, we're going to have to pay the piper. And whether the, the piper is the, the global economy or, or, or the global ecology, the effect is going to be the same. So it's worth a little bit of pain now to prevent a whole lot of pain later. Now, I'm fascinated. That brings up another point. I'm fascinated by some of the research that you did as part of, I guess, your research for your book and and probably just in general with the work you do was a book by a guy named uh, William Rathjay, which is called Rubbish, the Archaeology of Garbage. And Mm -hmm. this, this idea of analyzing ancient civilizations' garbage versus our own. Tell us a little bit about that. But we learned two things from garbage, or, or actually I should say Bill, and he passed, passed it on to me because he's a co-author of, of the book I wrote. Garbage, first of all, garbage doesn't lie. Um, you, you really learn what people do as opposed to what they say from studying their trash. 
Um, and I'll give you two very quick examples of that. When when you ask people how much beer they drink or how much soft soft drinks, they totally overestimate the amount of soft drinks and underestimate the amount of beer that they actually drink. And we know what they drink because we have their bottles. So people are always looking to put themselves in, in the best light. Um, the other thing that, that trash tells us is, and this has happened, and, and this has happened over and over again. And one of the biggest premises in the book we wrote was, what what has happened to every society that's ever recycled? And the answer is, it went away. And the reason societies go away is, by the time they come to grips with the fact that they need to do something to conserve resources, it's too late. And, and that is the biggest fear we have and the primary thing that, that we want to avoid. And, and I, I'm not that concerned about resources per se in terms of things we have. But at the point we come to grips with the fact that, oh, my goodness, global warming is a big issue, it's too late to do anything about it. Um, when we finally said, all right, there's a problem with the ozone and fluorocarbons are creating an ozone hole, we, we banned them. It was the size of Texas. The hole was the size of Texas or something like that. Right, and it's going to be another 99 years before the ozone is able to to replete itself to offset that damage. Mm-hmm. Global warming, we're not talking hundreds of years. We're talking thousands of years. So everything we do today has a significant impact potentially on not just our children, but their children and and, and probably out 50 generations. And we're not known, I think, as a society for living for future generations. We, we've very much, as a, as a whole, you know, I, I, I hate to generalize, but I, you know, it has to be said that we've, we've generally lived for the here and now, or at least for, the, for maybe the next generation, our children. Um, we're, we're not really known for focusing on uh, 100 or 200 or 1,000-year plans. Uh, that's right. So, so one has to wonder whether or not that's something that can be put into sort of the societal consciousness that we can start adjusting and thinking that way, as, even as, well, as a planet. You're right. Um, it, that tends to be a far more Eastern philosophical approach to life than, than a Western one. Uh, our tendency is to hope that technology will come to the rescue. Exactly. That, that's an iffy proposition at best. And the point you're raising is that, you know, even if that occurs, you're looking at uh, returns that are happening, you know, in, in, in possibly even a thousand years. Which is frightening. So how do we stay hopeful? Because hope is obviously an important, essential ingredient in mankind's ability to function. Um, you know, how do we sort of stay hopeful in, in that environment and make these kinds of changes? I mean, is, the, uh, are we, is it already too late, I guess, is the question here and with regards to this? With regards to oh, I, 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 don't want to, I don't want to be that negative. Um, no, I'm not going to say it's, it's too late. Uh, but, but, I mean, the, the signs are there. The, the, the single issue... And there really is only one issue here, and that issue is consumption. And the thing about consumption is it isn't necessarily what we consume, but what it takes to produce and transport it. The the single most critical issue is is energy, and um, for two reasons. The first is, as, as we're learning in, in lots of ways, with the, with the price of gasoline, for example, going where it is, and energy is getting more expensive every day. The second thing is, is there's no free lunch. The use of energy creates byproducts, waste, and it's the waste from energy consumption in terms of greenhouse gases and, and other airborne and waterborne emissions that that are the real issues. Because those are the things that are either going to create climate change 
or make it very uncomfortable for us to live. Um, the Earth doesn't really care if we're here or not. We've only been here for, I don't know, 100,000 years, and the Earth's been around for, depending on who you talk to, millions and billions of years. Mm-hmm. The, the planet doesn't care. The global ecosystem will adjust to our presence or lack thereof. What we're really talking about is saving ourselves. Right, exactly, yes. The Earth certainly doesn't care. It'll, it'll accommodate whatever life happens to be on it at the time. Well, so we'd like to leave our listeners with specific sort of takeaway tasks to do. And um, so if you, know, if you were to talk to our listeners right now about if we only had a few things to do each in this area, what would be the most important changes beyond energy that we could each make? Well, all right, I'm, I'm going to just stick on this one a, a little bit, okay. because obviously if, if you don't have to drive or you can drive less, you should do that. Around the house, the odds are right now when you go to take a shower and the water is, is too hot, in your shower, what do you do? You probably turn up the cold. Go downstairs or wherever your hot water heater is and turn that down a little bit. I mean, you turn it down just a little bit, you'll save 10 to 15% on your, on your monthly bills. Um, that's a huge amount. That's the single biggest energy consumer you have in your home. Uh, set your thermostat either up in the summer or down in the winter. Those, are, those things by themselves are what I'll call the low-hanging fruit. There's an enormous value in doing those sorts of things. Uh, the other thing is, because you shop every day, probably for food and whatever, plan. The, the worst thing you ever want to do is to go into any kind of a store without knowing what it is that you're going to buy, because then you'll buy whatever comes along in your impulse shopping. Plan ahead. Know what you need to buy, set a budget, and stick to it. Okay. It's, it's really that simple. Okay. Um, I have a, I'm curious, too, on another topic, if you think there's any validity in the idea of, well, what, this is anecdotal, so... Uh, we, we don't watch much TV in our house, but we do watch some. And um, we're, we're certainly not extreme about it, but we limit it greatly. But we certainly limit with our children. We have a five-year-old and a four-year-old. And we, we've limited or almost really eliminated as much as possible their watching of commercials because I've had you know, a suspicion that that really is what leads to our desire for, for being over-consumers for, for quite some time. And we had a recent experience where the, for the first time we were in a non-TiVo environment and our children had to watch some commercials because they were watching a show with some other kids and some friends of ours had their kids over. And I, I had as a, just as an experiment, I had said to my children beforehand, you know, they, we talked about commercials, and I said, you know, commercials make you want things that, that you might not have otherwise wanted. So we got into a dialogue about it, and my five-year-old is very expressive, and so he, he ended up watching some of the commercials, and he came back to me, and he said, he goes, he goes Daddy, I really want this, and it was like a chocolate cereal and something else, and, and I, but I, I was like, wow, I was blown away, but he expressed it to me in a, almost like an outside-of-himself sort of perspective, because he, he liked that, but, but he still wanted it. He said, I, I really want this, but he goes, it's, that commercial made me want that, so I at least created the awareness because I'm like, I can't shield him forever from the world of marketers and advertisers. Um, but I was fascinated by that. How much of that do you think the way that we are marketed to and advertised to is a factor in this? Oh, I, I, I think it's enormous. Um, kids are so, so bombarded. We all are. Um, and and there's, no, there's really no, no control of it anymore. And it comes back to the fact that what we're all about economically, or as a society now, is, is the economics. Uh, and and it, again, as you said, it's only when you go overseas and, and you see the quality of life in many places is, is, is not about what you do, what you buy, or how hard you work. That Those are all things that are supposed to support the, the time you spend with your family and friends. That, uh, and and you, you see advertising over there, but people 
don't seem to watch as much television, and it's it's just not as ubiquitous. Yeah. Great. Well, fascinating discussion. I really enjoyed having you on the program today. We would would love to have you back again if you'd uh, like to come back sometime and talk with us more. Oh, that'd be great. Anytime, Sean. Great. My guest today has been Bob Lillianfeld, and he is the author of Use Less Stuff, Environmental Solutions for Who We Really Are, which you can find on Amazon.com. And uh, you want to tell us your, your website address, I believe, is www.use-less-stuff.com. Is that correct? Um, yes, it is. And, and look, just let me say this quickly about the book. The book is out of, out of print. That's the bad news. Is The good news is Amazon has a consistently has a number of used copies in stock. So instead of having to pay $12, you'd probably have to pay 2 or 3 bucks, and you get to reuse something. So I'm real happy about it. There you go. Well, great. Well, Bob, thanks again for being on the program with us. Thanks, as always, to everyone listening in today. Remember, for more free on-demand podcasts, articles, videos, and other information related to living a greener lifestyle, visit our website at www.greenlivingideas.com. We'd also love to hear your comments, feedback, and questions. Send us an email at editors at greenlivingideas.com. Find more great shows like this on personallifemedia.com.